Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, culminators. I am very pleased to welcome back to the program for his first video appearance. Saurabh Amari was one of my first guests, and that was back before we uh, decided that uh, the audience, such as it is, could tolerate looking at me as well as listening to me, and uh, we've been flying ever since. Saurabh has a lot to update us on because it has been a couple of years. He's a very, very busy guy, and uh, there's a lot to be busy with. If you are a public intellectual, and there are not so many of those around anymore, but Saurabh is one of them. There's a lot to intellectualize about, a lot to think about, and hopefully maybe to help the public, the world, come to some solutions. So welcome back to the show, Saurabh. How are you? Thank you, Ron. I'm well. Hope you're well, too. Pretty good, thank you. Yes. So last time we spoke, you had actually, it was, I think, fairly soon after your previous book had come out, which was the uh, sort of the the education of Saurabh Amari. Uh, how you got to be who you are today, you were, you, you were um, becoming an American, and we're past all that. Origin story is behind us. This is not like Hollywood where they do the origin story after the adventure. We got the origin story. Now you're now we can start the adventure, uh, at least in terms of books. But you've had some adventures, right? Since we last left, I think you've made a couple of moves, or at least one significant move, in addition to a new book, which obviously we'll talk about in a couple minutes. Yeah, so um, last we spoke was uh, 2021. It was in the depths of the pandemic. Um, and Zoom was something relatively new, right. at least for me, uh, maybe for you as well. Uh, and now it's kind of part of the norm of life. And um, yeah, so I was working at the time as the op-ed editor of the New York Post. And I was coming up on a decade with with News Corp, uh, the, the Murdoch Empire. Um, I had been at the Wall Street Journal before that for five years and then doing the New York Post. And it was in the kind of aftermath of the censorship saga. You remember the Hunter Biden stuff. Sure. So since then, I, I left the post uh, in late 2021 and in 2022, in March 2022, launched a magazine called Compact. It's an online only subscription based magazine. Um, the kind of ideological space it tries to fill is to, to bring together both conservative and interestingly left of center critics of our um, current political arrangements, political economic arrangements. And um, so we publish, you know, people like Christopher Caldwell and Michael Anton, who are very much recognized, you know, are associated with like Claremont and are um, definitely <laughs> very right of center. And, but we also publish, you know, Slavoj Žižek, the Slovenian Marxist philosopher, or, um, you know, Ben Burgess, who's a, 
a columnist with Jacobin. And um, the idea, I mean, the name tries to capture that compact uh, as in an alliance uh, or a kind of a, a covenant, but not quite a not quite a um, a religious covenant, much more of a narrow. You know, what what where, where can we see eye to eye? Um, in a, in a shared critique, is it possible to build a new center um, compared to the current center? You know, the people who call themselves today centrists um, propose the most extreme stuff, right? Like war in Ukraine, you know, nuclear confrontation with Russia, all this stuff is normalized as being centrist. And what is um, opposed to that is treated either as like the fringes of the right and the left, um, when in fact we want to propose that it's the so-called center that in many ways has become really extreme and out of tune with what you know millions of ordinary people uh, on both sides of the Atlantic sh think should be happening in our lives and our common life together. So that's the idea. It's been a year and a half now almost, and uh, we're growing. It's very much subscription-based. Our proposition is there's a lot of Substacks. We ourselves read a lot of Substacks for sure. I certainly uh, subscribe to a lot of Substacks. Exactly, but our, our proposition is, look, the Substack world is like creating this heterodox um, environment in part because the traditional outlets have become so doctrinaire and orthodox that uh, even a lot of liberals find themselves kind of exiled. So there's a lot of interest in independent voices, but we, our proposition is not every, you know, thought that pops into, you know, XYZ writer's head is a good thought. Maybe it's a promising one, but it still requires the old school editorial kind of journalistic guidelines to, to be polished into a proper essay. And that's why we went with the magazine format. You know, it's a, it is a magazine. We publish one or two pieces daily, high production values. You know, we're very proud of how it looks. And um, no, it's been a journey, but it's been weird to be, you know, basically your own, your own boss or whatever, or an or a small businessman, you could say, you know, you have to make payroll things that I used to just be an employee. You just show up and, you know, well, not only that you, you, you were, you were the church part of church and state. You you were you you were the artist. You were the you know that was the ink stained wretches, I suppose, the people who had to make payroll. But you you've served a higher calling. Now you want to serve a high calling, but you also have to keep the lights on. <laughs> exactly right. That's a is well put. Yes. Thank you. You know, um, it's interesting to me that you include Marxists or a Marxist that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. whom you mentioned i actually i, I think my i think my intellectual son has mentioned him to me there's something that we all had to learn from marxism the hard way and i suppose that your new book probably acknowledges or addresses that to some extent ironically it um the left didn't learn it mm -hmm. or if they learned it or if they ever meant it at all which is an interesting question tyranny inc uh, it's this is a subject that that I've had the opportunity to discuss broadly speaking, and I have not had the opportunity to to read the book myself, and that's on me. Um, but you'll 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 give me every reason in the world to to order it as soon as we click off. It's really the end of the liberal, uh, not the liberal, the liber the libertarian pipe dream mm -hmm. that if it's not a government, which they seem to describe as something that has a seat at the UN or, or a flag, but if it's not a, a 
nation state, it's private and it's cool and it can't do us any harm. And if you don't like it, build your own. I guess we're past that now. Well, I think a, a lot of people are, especially on the right, where these sorts of views used to prevail, including, you know, frankly, where I used to work at the Wall Street Journal editorial page. And now I think that's come under sustained pushback from the right. And it's, I think that's healthy. It's come primarily as a result of these like big cultural or political flashpoints. So, for example, I mentioned the Hunter Biden story. Um, this was, you know, outright censorship. It was censorship about uh, a story that turned out to be true. And it was a story that um, implicated one of the two major party candidates in a very important national election, yet it was suppressed. And it was suppressed by this combination of governmental sort of urging, we now know, but largely the people pushing the button were private actors against whom a sort of libertarian would say we shouldn't have any political or legal defense, right? Because we choose to, you know, click, I agree to the terms of service and we don't, no one points a gun at our heads to, to do that. And therefore, if a large company, you know, censors your viewpoints on Facebook or Twitter, so be it, you know, it's not government doing it. Um, that used to be the prevailing view. And I, I remember a lot of conservatives myself sometimes would say, well, you know, Government is terrible, but you know we can't do anything about that. It's a free, you know, free marketplace. I think that we've all been a bit disillusioned from that, and I think that's healthy. I mean, another example is I think, um, you know, the the predations of what's called woke capital or woke human resources, where you know ordinary people, as a condition of earning their paychecks, have to be subject themselves to you know ideological reeducation. Um, what I try to focus on in the book, I do mention examples like that in the opening, but for the most part, I focus on the much more kind of humdrum and invisible forms of private sector tyranny, um, you know, in the workplace, in the bankruptcy process, in the arbitration chamber, um, you know, in situations where, again, we are told that coercion is only what government does. Um, when in fact, you know, our, our lives in the marketplace and workplace are suffused with coercion, except it's not centralized, it's not top down. But given the fact that, you know, in most industries, uh, there's really only two or three dominant firms, we primarily, you know, live under a condition of oligopoly and have since the late 19th century. The idea that you can free yourself from coercion, you're always free to find a better deal elsewhere, you're always free to, um, you know, get another job, get another da da da, is not actually realistic in terms of how most ordinary people live. And so the um, Marxians, yeah. so the Marxians were right about that, weren't they? It just that that's now our ox that's being gored, and we and we are acknowledging it. I mean, I think you know, you in the 19th century, you could turn to a lot of people who sounded a lot like Marx. Um, you know, so if you, for example, look at uh, speeches or writings by um, the Jacksonians, including President Jackson himself, or someone like Chief Justice Taney, or a little bit before that, even um, you know, you go to the sort of Arab Jeffersonian democracy. There was this recognition that as in as industrialization takes place, the old kind of model of um, you know a marketplace in which it, which is populated by 
you know, numerous small producers, you know, kind of yeoman farmers, artisans and so forth, who are free to meet each other as sort of relative equals and at an arm's length and transact together and then walk away. That was no longer the case by the mid 19th century. And um, just the fact of industrialization, the barriers to entry that were created uh, by economies of scale, et cetera, et cetera, made it so that the vast majority of people uh, had to toil for a living for wages and a relatively narrow portion of society, you know, we could call the asset rich, controlled most productive and financial assets. Now, Marx recognized that and put, you know, described that in some of the most sort of memorable language in the 19th century. But I think it's a mistake to just call this recognition that, hey, class, social class and power dynamics related to economic power are a reality. It's a mistake to make that just a Marxist idea, because in many ways, um, this recognition was the in the American tradition as well. It's just that in the American tradition, we came up with other solutions to the problem, which I think are better ones than socialism, right? Like the full on government ownership of everything uh, didn't work. And we learned that in the 20th century. I think, so what I argue in the book is, yes, I mean, there are these, and I go through and I give a sort of a tour of our economy of how it looks like from the point of view of people at the bottom. So just to give one example, you may be familiar with, because I know you're a lawyer, um, you know, the United States has long had, you know, since the early 20th century, this idea of arbitration as a means for uh, merchants of relatively equal bargaining power to come to terms. And um, the, in, in 1925, Congress enacted the Federal Arbitration Act, which is actually a kind of procedural rule that tells federal courts that you should uphold arbitral agreements between parties. But the idea was- Let me, all let me, just, let me just clarify for listeners, arbitral agreements, in other words, if instead of going to court, the parties agree that this relationship will be governed by mandatory arbitration so that if there's a dispute, we will go to a private litigation rather than government litigation. And that's going to have certain advantages as we perceive them when we make when we enter into the contract. And, and for merchants of relatively equal bargaining power, it has many advantages. It has speed and formality. Um, often the arbitrator can oversee many different topics as opposed to federal courts that can have these kind of narrow topic jurisdictions, et cetera. Um, it's good for, for those, but, but they, the idea was never, you know, in the legislative history of the Federal Arbitration Act was never that, um, you know, in a, in a workplace condition where there's these vast disparities in bargaining power between the two parties, arbitration would be enforced there. Yet beginning, uh, in the 1960s, but especially after the 1980s, the Supreme Court gradually expanded the scope of arbitration to the point where, you know, I tell the story of um, a, a, a guy named Stephen Morris, who was working for um, Ernst & Young as a low-level, non-licensed um, staffer, you know, doing sort of very basic work. But it, during tax season, Ernst & Young, the accounting giant, extracts a lot of work out of its employees. In fact, it tells them that you should expect to work 50, 60 hours a week during this time. Um, but it wouldn't pay someone like him, who was a low-level staffer, overtime uh, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is a New Deal law that guarantees you overtime, and under the um, California labor law. Uh, they were deeming him an ex what they call an exempt employee. Correct. Even though, even though you know, I mean, he was a low-level staffer who was overseen by 
um, you know, more senior partners and so forth. So he sues and Ernst and Young insists that he should follow the arbitration process. And in the course of the litigation that follows, because he doesn't want to be pushed into arbitration, by the way, not even class arbitration, it has to be individual arbitration. So you can't, you can't share discovery with similarly situated um, plaintiffs. You can't uh, band together in any way. And it's plainly irrational. It would have cost if more. Get, that's if you can get discovery. Correct, correct, which is not, and, and the process of arbitration is much more of a black box. And Morris, uh, you know, in, in the course of this litigation over whether or not he should be forced to do individual arbitration, um, you know, there was an affidavit which Ernst and Young didn't challenge that would have, it would have cost them $200,000 to prevail ultimately in, uh, in arbitration. But the, and, and this is in the sort of record of this case where the various federal courts accepted that, whereas it would have cost, it, he was trying to recover something like $4,000. 2000 in wages and then 2000 in damages. Um, and yet our Supreme Court held that, you know, the parties had freely agreed to arbitrate their disputes and therefore that's the end of that. Um, now, bear in mind, the way it worked was he started working, there was no arbit mandatory arbitration. And then like down the road, the firm sent an email and said, if you show up to work the next day, you agree to arbitrate your disputes. The idea that you're free at that point to renegotiate is a complete sort of libertarian economic fantasy, but it's the kind of fantasy that appeals to a certain kind of libertarian judge. It's like, whoa, yes, at that point, you know, as Milton Friedman said, it, that's not how it works. You want to show up because you have to pay the bills, right? And that's a very common way that employment uh, agreements uh, and and policies are, are uh, amended during the employment during the period of employment is right that, you know you, you, there, there are different ways to do it but you know it's at will employment so you don't have to come in tomorrow if you don't if you don't if you don't like this and and that again we can see why we can see the we can see the advantages of that but all of a sudden you begin to get insight into why workers began to organize because they they needed some way to to balance out this in you know this complete lack of symmetry in bargaining power. Right. And so, you know, I mean, in I compare this Canadian case where it was an Uber driver making like, you know, uh, $2,000 a month and uh, for Uber Eats, uh, his name is Heller and uh, Heller and all the other drivers in the area, this is in Toronto, receive a a notice that takes over their Uber delivery app and says you have to sort of like click agree before you can proceed. Now this is happening while in many cases they're in the middle of a delivery and they have suddenly this takes over the app and it's a several page document, everyone clicks agree. What it does is it reduces their wages drastically. Um, so Morris challenges this and uh, Uber insists on arbitration, which in this case would have taken place in Amsterdam uh, in the International Chamber of Commerce where he would have had to pay 15,000 euros just for the case to be opened um, in this foreign you know, forum an ocean away. Um, the Canadian Supreme Court in that case said, um, look, that's unconscionable. And so the two cases, it's, uh, you know, the Morris is the, is the case in the uh, United States. The comparable case is Heller, the Uber in Canada. Um, I'll tell you something else about arbitration that a lot of people don't realize. Even commercial arbitration, where there's relative 
and relative is a is carrying a lot of weight here, but relatively equal bargaining power. You mm-hmm. know, relative, if it's to say that my seven or eight figure company is has bargaining power with respect to Microsoft or something is a little bit preposterous also, but fine. It's not like being an, an Uber Eats driver. But what a lot of people don't appreciate is that one of the reasons that arbitration is not appealable as a general rule, 99 out of 100 times, is that the concept of arbitration in the 1930s was three arbitrators. I choose an arbitrator, you choose an arbitrator, and then you agree on a third arbitrator. Or a panel is, there are lots of ways to choose the panel, but the point is, I'm not being, my my fate is not being decided by one person. Mm-hmm. Therefore, an appeal shouldn't be necessary. We're going to get it all done at once. That's cost prohibitive, except in the most, in the gaudiest of arbitrations, where, where you know, money is essentially no object. So what you have is an, a, a system where, there is no jury and there's no appealability and there's no review and it is pretty lousy. It's pretty lousy. Uh, there's, you know, it, it, it's almost, and, and it's almost, almost always used by parties that seek to discourage their counterparties from challenging a breach or challenging, you know, any aspect of the contract because it's just cost prohibitive. Okay. No. You, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. no you... I mean, I, I just think that um, as as bad as that is um, in a kind of in a kind of commercial context, um, what's outrageous about this, and so sometimes I become a a right wing critic of the conservative legal movement or the establishment GOP, is that this this expansion of of the FAA, the Federal Arbitration Act, and it has been radical. So, for example gradually the Supreme Court said, oh, by the way, you know, even if you have a like a RICO racketeering dispute, the arbitration element of the contract still stands. Even if everything else in the contract is fraudulent, the arbitration. Even if there are parties that are not parties to the agreement with the arbitration, but they are, but, 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 but one of the contracts involved is mandatory, does have mandatory arbitration, some or part of that entire dispute can shoehorned into arbitration. And so, but just in the employment context, it's really, um, it's really outrageous because, you know, especially a lot of the, a lot of the judges and justices who gave us the current regime, you know, claim to be originalists, which means they uh, are, are the the intentions of a framers of a, of a law or a piece of, um, a uh, piece of statutory law is should be supreme. So in this case, you know, the people who were pushing for uh, the Federal Arbitration Act, you know, were involved with the New York Chamber of Commerce, but also, uh, you know, then Secretary of Treasury, you know, Herbert Hoover, sorry, Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover was a huge, uh, he would, he, he concern, right? He, he, sorry, he was a huge ally of the, the FAA. And, you know, he, uh, wrote lawmakers Hoover. He said, "Look, we realize one of your concerns is quote the inclusion of workers' law contracts um, in the law scheme, and let, let's assure we're going to make sure that that doesn't happen." Or W. H. H. Piat, who was um, 
an official with the American Bar Association who was press, pressing for the law, he testified, you know, that this is purely about giving merchants the right or the privilege of sitting down and agreeing with each other. Now, that's all there is in this. And when someone said, well, what if what if stronger parties, you, you know, abusively take advantage of it against weaker parties? He said, I would not favor any kind of legislation that would permit the forcing of a man to sign that kind of a contract. I think that ought to be protested against because it is the primary end of this contract that it is a contract between merchants, between commercial parties of relatively equal bargaining power. So this is all in the legislative history of the FAA. Sorry, we're going into the weeds, but I was just giving one example. And that's, it's my of... fault because as a lawyer, you mentioned arbitration, and I'm thinking of, of the very, very mixed bag that arbitration yeah. presents. Yeah. But you, in that narrative, though, you, you, you come back to a, up to a point that I, that I think is really one of the big libertarian stumbling blocks, which is this idea that corporations, which they conveniently tend to forget, are creations of the state. There's nothing in the natural law that makes a corporation uh, exempt from a personal liability, a, a stockholder corporation exempt from personal liability. Um, and corporations are just like big people. They're the way people do things together. And mm -hmm. just as just as people can or merchant mer merchants can deal with each other, a person dealing with a corporation is just two different people, uh, right. both of whom, after all, have free speech rights. Um, there, there are, you know, there are a lot of moving parts here. Libertarian, I, I mean, I think like you and I have no trouble understanding that libertarian, I think libertarianism is a, is a failure philosophically, not only politically. Mm -hmm. uh, and one thing I want to talk about, and believe it or not, as it happens with when you and I talk, time begins to evaporate. Um, where's the space for the spiritual on this? Mm -hmm. This economic analysis, this sort of bloodless, you know, let's take a step back and, you know, reshuffle the deck. Is it possible to restore dignity and humanity, which I which I'm assuming are part of the program that, mm -hmm. to the way we deal with each other economically and otherwise in a world that is. Or, or at least in a society that is so utterly lacking in an understanding of the spirit of the soul mm -hmm. of, of, of and you know where the religious tradition has been so severely undermined yeah i mean so to be clear my outrage about things like arbitration abuse in the workplace or some of the other cases um i show in the book for example the corrosion of the real economy by private equity right um, it didn't used to be that the American corporation was returning almost every bit of capital it had to shareholders. Why is that bad? Because you erode your capital enough and then you don't have a business. And that's often the model that's forced on companies by hedge funds and private equity and so on and so forth. And in each case, I tell a kind of individual story of someone harm, harmed by these processes. My outrage with this is inspired by, by my faith, uh, you know, the Catholic faith, where uh, you know, for example, in the case of Morris and his wages, unjustly withheld wages in the Catholic tradition with, you know, withholding a worker's wage is one of the four sins that cry out to heaven for, for vengeance. That's, that's how the catechism, uh, puts it. And by the way, it, um, 
you know, it, it's in the book of St. James, which is in the, in the New Testament, but there's also um, analog commandments uh, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible. Yes, it's a, it's a very serious, a very serious issue addressed in both the written law and the oral law, withholding a person's wage, uh, an acknowledgement, presumably. I mean, we, we we don't claim to know why God gives us the commandments, but an acknowledgement of the imbalance of power. But but exactly. So, but where I, you know, part ways from a kind of purely spiritual politics. Oh, if only we could restore people's, um, you know, moral sense. Uh, you know, we'd have a better economy. I think we would. Um, that would help, but it's it's not enough. And right. and all, all these all these traditions have are recognized that mere exhortation to virtue is not sufficient to help form a more virtuous citizenry. You also need law. Law with its with its with its capacity for coercion can bolster the work of spiritual uplift. Um, and there are you know. In the 19th century, again in American history, all these traditions that uh, you know saw what was happening in the economy. Of course, what was happening in the South, in the antebellum South, was slavery, and they mustered a religious response to it. But often they were most effective when that religious response was married to an old law reform. So William uh, Jennings Bryant would be probably the best example of someone who took evangelical fervor and tried at least to turn it into a political platform. He ran for president, what, four times? He, he did, he did. Um, but he ended up as a, as a Wilson Secretary of uh, State. That was, a, that was his reward. Um, yep, so the, the progressive farmers in the, in the late 19th and 20th century, when we say progressive, it's not quite the connotation right. that it has today. Like they, they weren't blue haired. <laughs> yeah. Right, uh, no, but, 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 but I mean, the Sherman Act is, you know, is, is the, the the much forgotten Sherman Act and the much maligned law, antitrust laws were the fruit of the you know were were the fruit of of the um, progressive movement in many or were an important fruit of, the, of of that movement and they were considered to be ways to save capitalism from the threat of communism from socialism. Right. Right. And and so just to close the loop on like my book solutions uh, section, as it were, I, I, you know, I, I present a critique that a Marxist could read and say, hey, that's right, that does happen with unrestrained markets. And but I also but again, as I say, um, you know, a lot of Jacksonians would say the same thing, uh, you know, Lincoln would recognize some of the same problems with unhindered markets. Um, but my solution for it is the solutions that we forged in the in the 20th century and especially in the decades immediately after World War II, which is not abandoning markets because they allocate goods and services and capital quite efficiently in many in many ways. But there has to be sort of some recognition of the fact that unhindered markets produce vast disparities of power that kind of make a mockery of democracy. We have political equality, but if you have that degree of you know, inequality in, in wealth, uh, then our claims to, to political democracy come under pressure. So what was the solutions for us? It was in some cases antitrust, that was a sort of Sherman Antitrust Act and various Brandeisian solutions. New Dealers, by the way, a huge Catholic component to the New Deal, um, the Wagner Act, etc. So we don't necessarily can re reproduce every element of that 
post-war mid-century consensus today. The, econ the macro economy has changed in important ways, but some of the principles, the principle of countervailing power, if you have um, one large concentration of power, um, you want in the market for the persons subjugated to that power on the other side of the market to be empowered. So what do I mean by that? Laissez-faire types or libertarians say, um, it's enough to have competition between sellers or just between buyers. But countervailing power is the idea that you, there should be a kind of competition between sellers and buyers as well. So for example, in a labor market where you have typically very few buyers of labor and many, many sellers of labor who are workers, um, you need to try to bolster the power, the countervailing power of sellers in that case, that, that would be wage earners. Um, and in many other areas, this happens naturally. So when you have, for example, appliance manufacturers, typically uh, uh, department stores exert pressure, you know, because of their power on the on the sellers or producers, and then they pass on the savings to consumers. Likewise, you know, in in other markets like the labor market, you can do the same thing. But in some markets, it just needs government help, right? In order for for countervailing power to emerge, you, you need laws that are able to do that because otherwise what governs are the vast disparities in power and, um, and wealth between the two sides. And that's what the Wagner Act did. And I think that basic principle is applicable in our time. So those of us who remember the 70s, stagflation, remember a time when these principles were prevalent. There was still a certain, there was still a good amount of antitrust enforcement from the government. Um, unions had a tremendous amount of power over both government and major economic uh, enterprises. Um, there was a problem with growth. We began to reach a point that some of that was complicated by, by the subsequent oil shocks in the early 70s. But what we saw was that government and when government is given that kind of power to level a playing field, it will inevitably, as political science predicts, become captured by competing forces. And of course, a generation later, here we are now, where technology, the techn technology companies that basically run so much of the world that, that matters to us, or just the corporate world and the financial world and government and law enforcement have become this block, this solitary block. It's sort of hard to, to understand how we can argue for more power being returned to regulators when regulators are essentially private actors that are being paid by us as taxpayers to make our lives more difficult. So how do we, how do we deal with that good faith problem with that, you know, the, the, the lack of aspiration and statesmanship? There's always been corruption, obviously. That's goes back to the very beginning of the, of government. But if we think of the 50s and 60s as a kind of era of relatively good feel, you know, when things kind of maybe worked better than they do now, how do we, how do we address that problem? Why can we trust government? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I don't have um, I don't have as much uh, anxiety about um, about government power. Um, 
right now at this moment um because what i see as much more menacing is uh uh private power and the reason why i, I held those up on this on, the, on a balance i hold them up at sort of in different ways or weigh them differently is that i do think at the end of the day um there is one that has various public mechanisms for pub for public democratic challenge the other doesn't and um that said that said i mean i think that people who are in my take my position do need to be very careful about regulatory capture which it's not a it's no joke um i mean i think that th there are ways to sort of um create bulwarks against that, you know, which various, by the way, people, par politicians of both administrations or both parties have sought to do that. So for example, um, revolving doors between between Congress, administrative agencies and corporations have and to be- And lobbying. Yeah, and lobbying. There, are, there have to be ways of, of closing that door. I, I, you know, every administration that comes in, Democratic or Republican has said something like, the revolving door will be closed. But it never quite it never quite happens, and I think that's a that's a huge problem because if you don't if you have a permanent class of professional administrators who see their role as service to the public, now we can disagree about various things. Some of them might be progressives, conservatives, whatever, but they have this kind of my job is this. This is what I do. I uphold you know uh, the public good, and I have to have in some ways a kind of not adversarial, but at least a sort of probing critical relationship with industry that's one thing but if you have you know congressman so-and-so then becomes goes to k street becomes a lobbyist for this and that and then another administration comes in and he's you know at the epa or at whatever agency i think that's a real problem and i so i agree with you with the problem of regulatory capture but i think it's a matter of fixes and the i think the case can be made too strongly and then what you're left with is just enormous concentrations of private power against whom we don't have any any defense or appeal. Well, let's go back to your, you know, to, 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 to sort of close everything here, come full circle. Your, your very compelling original um, example of where the technology media companies shut down discussion of the of the Hunter Biden laptop. Mm -hmm. They did it hand in glove with the government mm -hmm. um, in order to secure the election of one political party. No one would stop it. No one could stop it ex except through, you know, sort of alternative, uh, alternative media that still haven't, reach the level of maturity that they're able to meaningfully you know ha have have a kind of any a kind of really meaningful impact on most of the electorate how would any how would things look if that situation came in and the Saurabh Amari program were have been adopted for five years how would things be any different yeah so I um with terms of big tech, frankly, I, I turn to the great uh, the great leftist thinker uh, Clarence Thomas. 
who has, <laughs> who has mused about the necessity of perhaps treating these companies as common carriers. You know, your your phone company can't discriminate against you for your your, your political views unless you have over five million uh, impressions. Then then you're special. We would agree with exactly, exactly right. So, um, you know, I mean, I think there are there are. Uh, Many, many big challenges uh, ahead, but this is one of the ones because we cannot have we cannot have political contestation if a if a handful of Silicon Valley oligarchs and and I include Elon in this, we should not be naive can control discourse, whatever their ideology might be, you know, Elon tends this way, Zuck that way. Um, you know, I think that our public square is these platforms. You know, and that's I think that's the premise behind Justice Thomas's, you know, sense of alarm and why he proposed this. It's a kind of dicta. It's in a dissent. It's not it's not yet, you know, a fully formed opinion. It just briefly says. But I think his sense of alarm, it comes from that. We can't have political contestation if if the public the public square is, you know, pri privately owned and then privately kind of minutely controlled and the rules are constantly changing and the algorithm might end up you know, against you. And then how do you, how do you appeal to it? There's, there's no, the chat bot will eventually turn you away. And there you are, you've been unpersoned. Um, so I think that that's one of the cases where, you know, uh, it is, it, 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 you can draw on common law resources, you can draw on um, a lot in the 19th century, where we began to think of what it means to have common carriers. Um, so it's in the American tradition, it would be in anything radical, but it should be like a regulated utility is, is the bottom line. You know, I, I, I think the, the, the fly in the ointment is the cultural and moral terrorists. The, there is no platform that the extreme left and extreme right or nihilists who don't fit anywhere on the spectrum, but who are just, they're interested in causing destruction. Mm-hmm won't ruin and you know the, the 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 rules of the road that these platforms have, have have inevitably enacted all started out having a very logical basis which is that you know these nazis would show up or these antifa would show up and terrorize people and they would do so anonymously so they say okay fine we, we're going to have some bright lines you can't do this and then those lines keep creeping up and creeping up and then you have the involvement of law enforcement. It's 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 a very complicated it's a matter, but I think I think you're right. This is one area that needs needs reform. How much government can or should do? Government, I think, has become an utter has never been less trustworthy in American history. Um, but governments, as I was snarkily saying in the beginning, aren't only things with flags and armies and national anthems. Uh, I'm always pointing out that, you know, Google has a, a net worth far greater than many or maybe even most nation states in the world and far more influence and power. And we have to adjust our political understanding and our economic understanding and social understanding to re recognize that these are these are powers that the individual and the soul has to fight have to fight against or at least be wary of as much as any state. Amen. Saurabh, best of luck with Compact and with the book. I'm going to let you know on Twitter uh, when I've when I've read it. 
and I want to set up a, a debate between you and Michael Malice. Oh, yeah, we have one coming up. At least it's it's scheduled. Oh, maybe that's what got it into my head because you're both identifying the same problem and your solutions could not be more different. So make sure that I want a personal invitation from you because I want to make sure I don't, don't do it on a damn Saturday. That's no, no, no. It'll be like a, it'd be oh, Zoom. I'm, it wouldn't be in person. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm even prepared to moderate or is, or Cernovich got that gig or something. Yeah. Okay. So thanks for so thanks so much for coming. It's great to see you again, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Mr. Coleman. Mr. I, you know, now that I'm 60, I let people call me Mr. Coleman. I, no, know, no, I know. I, I sort of felt like I, I have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.